That hymn is um, the original words were written by William Cooper. Um, he wrote a few uh, others, A Fountain Filled with Blood, some, some others, I believe. And uh, he was, this is nothing to do with the sermon. I haven't started yet. Um, <laughs> he, he was uh, part of John Newton's church. Um, John Newton was his pastor, and he suffered mightily from what we would call today depression. Tried to commit suicide a few times and uh, um, clung, held on kind of by the thinnest of threads um, to God and wrote those words. And it's just, uh, I think those are important, important words. Anyway, um, Micah chapter 6, verse 8. Uh, so if you're using one of the Bibles in the seat in front of you there, it's on page 780. So if you can't find it in your Bible and you'd rather just pull one of those out, it's on uh, 780, um, deep in the Old Testament, Amos, Obadiah, Jonah, Micah, Nahum, uh, Micah 6.8. That verse says this, He has told you, O man, what is good, and what does the Lord require of you but to do justice, to love kindness, and to walk humbly with your God. Um. Dr. Uh, Vodi Bakum, who is a dean of theology at African Christian University in Lusaka, Zambia, um, on the African continent, in a sermon on 2 Timothy chapter 4, verses 1 through 8, he recently said this. He said, if the social justice movement went by its actual name, young Christians would, have been, uh, would not have been lured into it because the social justice movement is actually cultural Marxism. There's no such thing as social justice, people. In fact, in the Bible, justice never has an adjective. There's justice and there's injustice. There's not different kinds of justice. So this morning, we're going to be finishing up this short series that we've been working on, um, on the glory of Christ. And I, I want to acknowledge right at the very beginning here that this topic of social justice may not actually be on your radar, but it certainly has the attention of many in our world today, believers and unbelievers. So, for example, there is currently a bill in the United States House of Representatives um, that would form, if this were passed, it would form a commission to study whether black Americans should receive financial reparations for slavery. It's gaining traction amongst top Democrats in the House of Representatives. Um, the legislation actually reached 90 co-sponsors by the end of June, just, just last week. So this particular social justice issue, as many would say, reparations, it's, uh, been, a, it's been a hot button with the, uh, hot button topic with the political talk show circuit. It's been promoted by several of the current presidential candidates, but it's just one of many issues that fall under the umbrella of social justice. Many in the church, many specifically in certain denominations, even even conservative denominations, have begun to, to teach, once again, as they did in the 1920s, that social justice is tied up in the gospel. That in order for a church to be faithful to the Bible, it must be involved in this work in some way. But is that the message of the good news of Jesus Christ? Christians, of all people, 
Christians should be in favor of justice being carried out. We should be in favor of justice being carried out. But we need to understand biblical justice, so we need to define our terms. Remember, Micah 6.8 says, He has told you, O man, what is good. And what does the Lord require of you but to do justice, to love kindness, and to walk humbly with your God? Let's just stop and pray before we define these terms here and go on. Father, I pray that you would give us ears to hear. Help us to, to understand this morning as we look at this verse, as we look at this passage, and as we understand and begin to catch a glimpse of the glory of Christ on his throne. Father, I thank you for all these words. We pray in Jesus' name. So to define the terms, um, social justice has been defined as, this is according to Merriam-Webster Dictionaries.com, their, their website, um, social justice has been defined as, quote, a state or doctrine of egalitarianism, a belief in human equality, especially with respect to social, political, and economic affairs, a social philosophy advocating the re- removal of inequalities among people. Now, I think we could all agree, in theory at least, that at least some of those things are good things. So we believe that all men, that all of humanity is created equal, that we are all created in the image of God. And because of that, as I've mentioned this a couple of times, it's the 4th of July. Well, it's the 7th of July or whatever it is, but it was the 4th of July this week. Um, Thomas Jefferson famously declared and started a war over uh, that they have been, that, that all mankind has been endowed by their creator with certain unalienable rights. But does that mean that, that all inequalities among people should be, or even can be, eliminated? So, for example, economic inequality. Well, this may be teetering on the edge of political commentary, so we need to look at the scriptures. But first, I want to read to you one quote. This is by Pastor Kevin DeYoung, and he wrote this in 2010. Uh, he was talking about Christians using the term social justice. He wrote this. The term is unassailable to some and arouses suspicion in others. For many Christians, social justice encompasses every, everything good that we should be doing in the world, from hunger relief to su- serving the poor to combating sex trafficking. The phrase is also used to support more debatable matters like specific health care legislation, minimum wage increases, or reducing carbon emissions. If something can be included as a social justice issue, then no one can oppose said issue because who in their right mind favors social injustice? See, this is getting at the root of the problem. The world and Christians who have been set apart from the world, Christians who, in fact, Peter would call a chosen race, a royal priesthood, a holy nation, a people for his own possession, that you may proclaim the excellencies of him who called you out of darkness into his marvelous light. Once you were not a people... But now you are God's people. Once you had not received mercy, but now you have received mercy. And then he says, Beloved, I urge you as sojourners and exiles to abstain from the passions of the flesh, which wage war against your soul. The world and Christians view social justice or these issues differently from each other. Now, we could go down a lot of different rabbit trails this morning. I've already kind of hinted at and pointed out a couple But I would tell you that the world views social justice arbitrarily and inconsistently. So, for example, um, 
the world by and large holds to a Darwinian evolutionary theory, which is the prevailing, it is the prevailing worldview of Western society today. And this holds to the idea of natural selection, survival of the fittest. And if that is true, then that, that viewpoint naturally points to an anti-pro-life argument. And yet, now hear me here, the same people often are arguing for the destruction, that are, that are arguing for the destruction of human children in their mother's wombs. They're overly concerned with animal rights or in pleading for the humane treatment of children at illegal de- uh, immigration detention centers. Now, don't misunderstand. I'm not making a political statement. I'm simply saying that the world is inconsistent and arbitrary. But the Bible views justice differently. I I preached a couple weeks ago about the sanctity of human life, that every single child is made in the image of God, formed by God, knitted together by God, intricately woven by God and watched over by God. And as Psalm 8, 5 says, God has crowned mankind with glory and honor. And we saw that since those two words mean pretty much the same thing, when taken together, it actually means that he has crowned mankind with with a royal dignity. According to the Bible, we're to have a high view of every single human life. Jesus taught us that we're to love our enemies and we are also to love one another. James says, religion that is pure and undefiled before God the Father is this, to visit orphans and widows in their affliction and to keep oneself unstained from the world. So here is the truth. God hates injustice. God hates injustice. So think about this. Where is Jesus Christ right now? Where is Jesus right now? Well, this, this whole series, this, all of this that we've been talking about over these last several weeks is based on the fact that he is seated on his throne of grace. It's Hebrews chapter 4. That's where we started. Since then, we have a great high priest who has passed through the heavens. Jesus, the Son of God, let us hold fast our confession. We do not have a high priest who is unable to sympathize with our weaknesses, but one who in every respect has been tempted as we are, yet without sin. Let us then with confidence draw near to the throne of grace that we may receive mercy and find grace to help in time of need. Jesus is seated at the right hand of the Father. And Hebrews chapter 10 verse 13 says that he is waiting from that time until his enemies should be made a footstool for his feet. Christ is seated on his throne and he rules the world even with justice. Psalm 89 verse 14 confesses it like this. Righteousness and justice are the foundation of your throne. Steadfast love and faithfulness go before you. We understand as Christians that he has delegated authority even to image bearers. Right? God has delegated authority to his people and he expects those authorities those who are ruling under his authority, he expects them to do justice. Romans chapter 13, the first five verses says it very clearly. Let every person be subject to the governing authorities, for there is no authority except from God. And those that exist have been instituted by God. Therefore, whoever resists the authorities, resists what God has appointed, and let those who resist, uh, they will incur judgment. For rulers are not a terror to good conduct, but to bad. 
Would you have no fear of the one who is in authority? Then do what is good, and you will receive his approval, for he is God's servant for your good. But if you do wrong, be afraid, for he does not bear the sword in vain. He is the servant of God, an avenger who carries out God's wrath on the wrongdoer. Therefore, one must be in subjection, not only to avoid God's wrath, but also for the sake of conscience. The Old Testament law uh, required God's people, required Israel, to care for the weak, to care for the vulnerable, the sojourners, the, the widows, the poor, and so forth. And to fail to uphold the law, any part of the law, would bring judgment. Ultimately, God will not tolerate any injustice. The Bible is very clear. The unjust will be punished for their iniquity. Remember, as we saw last week, and such were some of you. Romans chapter 3, for all have sinned and fallen short of the glory of God and are justified by his grace as a gift through the redemption that is in Christ Jesus, whom God put forward as a propitiation by his blood to be received by faith. This was to show God's righteousness Because in his divine forbearance, he had passed over former sins. It was to show his righteousness at the present time so that he might be just and the justifier of the one who has faith in Jesus. The truth is, we don't really want justice for ourselves. We don't really want justice. What we want is mercy. The truth is, we do not want justice. We need mercy. 1 Peter chapter 3, verse 18, For Christ also suffered once for sins, the righteous for the unrighteous, the just for the unjust, that he might bring us to God, being put to death in the flesh, but made alive in the Spirit. So, now that I've set this discussion up, hopefully, the question that we're asking today is this. Where does the gospel... Where does the good news of Jesus Christ, where does this come into play with, as we would call, or many in the world calls, social justice concerns? Areas of racial reconciliation, or abortion, or poverty, or immigration, so-called marriage equality, or sexuality, or gender issues, or any other myriad of issues that have been or will be thrown around. Where does the gospel play into these things? And we need to remember and make no mistake, those things aren't going away. They may change. They have changed historically over the generations. But they're not going away. We have to deal with them. So we need to know how to think through these things in light of God's word. So where does the gospel of Jesus Christ fit? Well, amongst Christians at least, um, whatever stripe of Christian you would might see use this, Micah 6.8 is one of the most popular verses in this discussion. But it's important for us to understand the context of the book of Micah and chapter 6 in particular, if we're going to use this verse. Micah's a prophet. He is uh, proclaiming a message of judgment to the people of uh, mostly Judah, although he does address um, the northern kingdom of Israel once or twice. But consistently, he is, he is uh, proclaiming a message of judgment to the people who, who constantly turn toward wickedness, away from God and toward wickedness. And his message over and over again is a message of doom and hope, of judgment and reminders of God's promises and God's faithfulness. And so by the time we come to chapter 6 of Micah's little book, 
We can see God's indictment of his people in the first five verses. I'm going to read that in a moment. Essentially, the indictment is this. I've saved you. I've delivered you. I've protected you. I've called you to righteousness, yet you've disobeyed and dishonored me. That's the first five verses. Then we see the people's response to that in verses 6 and 7. And that response, their response is insufficient. And then the prophet speaks the truth in verse 8. So I want to read these verses. Micah 6, 1 through 8. Hear what the Lord says. Arise, plead your case before the mountains, and let the hills hear your voice. Hear, you mountains, the indictment of the Lord and the enduring foundations of the earth. For the Lord has an indictment against his people, and he will contend with Israel. Here it is, verse 3. O my people, what have I done to you? Have, how have I wearied you? Answer me. For I brought you up from the land of Egypt and redeemed you from the house of slavery. And I sent you before, uh, before you Moses, Arian, Aaron, and Miriam. O my people, remember what Balak, the king of Moab, devised, and what Balaam, the son of Beor, answered him, and what happened from Shittim to Gilgal, that you may know the righteous acts of the Lord. Here's their response, verses 6 and 7. With what shall I come before the Lord? And bow myself before God on high. Shall I come before him with burnt offerings, with calves a year old? Will the Lord be pleased with thousands of rams and ten thousands of rivers of oil? Shall I give my firstborn for my transgression, the fruit of my body for the sin of my soul? And then Micah writes this. He proclaims, He's told you, O man, what is good. And what does the Lord require of you but to do justice, to love kindness, and to walk humbly with your God? In, in speaking this truth here in verse 8, Micah reminds us of the three things required by God of his covenant people. He says, do justice, love kindness, and walk humbly with your God. We need to remember as we, um, as we look at this that we cannot understand and we cannot fulfill these requirements without understanding and fulfilling God's commandments. In fact, some have said that this statement, that verse 8, is another summary of the whole of God's law. You probably remember in the New Testament, um, Jesus was asked about the, the most important of the laws. Uh, what are the chief laws? And he responds in Mark chapter 12, verses 30 um, to 32. He says, and you shall love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, with all your mind, with all your strength. And the second is this, you shall love your neighbor as yourself. There's no other commandment greater than these. And the scribe answered him, he agreed with him, and said this, You're right, teacher. You have truly said that he is one and there is no other besides him. We could easily make a very convincing argument that Micah 6, 8, and Jesus' statement there in Mark chapter 12, and he says it again in, in Matthew. Matthew records uh, essentially the same thing. The scribe agrees with him. We could make a, a convincing argument that those things complement each other and essentially point to the same thing, the fulfillment of God's law. Back to the context of Micah. This verse, Micah 6.8, is a confrontation. The people of Israel, the, the, technically the, the southern tribe of Judah, really, the people of Judah, uh, God's people were unfaithful in obeying his commandments. 
And he has said to them, in fact, he said to them through Moses, he said, now therefore, if you will indeed obey my voice and keep my covenant, you shall be my treasured possession among all peoples, for all the earth is mine, and you shall be to me a kingdom of priests and a holy nation. And all the people answered together and said, all that the Lord has spoken, we will do. And then he gave them the Ten Commandments. And then he gave them the rest of the law. And he warned them that there would be judgment and and punishment if they did not keep his law. But he promised them that if they repent, he would restore them. He warned them again. And then he warned them again and again and again. And he sent prophet after prophet after prophet to warn them over and over again to return to him in repentance. And by the time we get to Micah, he's telling them that they are They are morally and spiritually dead. They're dead. He says in chapter 2, Micah 2, the first two verses, he says, Woe to those who devise wickedness and work evil on their beds, thinking it through at night, thinking through how to do evil things. Because when the morning dawns, they perform it. Because it is in the power of their hand. They covet fields and seize them and houses, and take them away. They oppress a man in his house, a man in his inheritance. The strong take advantage of the weak. That's injustice. Listen to what he says about the rulers and the prophets in chapter 3. First couple of verses, Micah 3, 1 and 2. And I said, hear you heads of Jacob, and rulers of the house of Israel. Is it not for you to know justice? You who hate the good and love the evil, who tear the skin off my people, and the flesh off their bones. Injustice on behalf of the, of the governmental authorities. It gets worse in verse 11. Its heads give judgment for a bribe. Its priests teach for a price. Its prophets practice divination for money. Yet they lean on the Lord and say, Is not the Lord in the midst of us? No disaster shall come upon us. God will bless us. Keep sending your money. And when confronted by God here in these first five verses of Micah 6, they respond in verses 6 and 7 by by asking what they need to offer to God in order to appease his wrath. Listen to what they say again. With what shall we come before the Lord and, and, and bow myself before God on high? Shall I come before him with burnt offerings, with calves a year old? Will the Lord be pleased with thousands of rams? Ten thousands of rivers of oil. Shall I give my firstborn for my transgression? The fruit of my body for the sin of my soul? There's almost some sarcasm in their response. Nothing is ever good enough. But Micah is reminding them to look back on God's law for the answer. He's reminding them that this is more than just simply going through the motions. Micah 6, 8 really is an echo of Deuteronomy chapter 10, verses 12 and 13, which says this, And now, Israel, what does the Lord your God require of you but to fear the Lord your God, to walk in all his ways, to love him, to serve the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, to keep the commandments and statutes of the Lord, which I am commanding you today for your good. All justice, mercy, 
loving kindness, faithfulness, and, and all walking humbly with God flows from God's law. It's first seen in the garden in Genesis chapter 2, verses 16 and 17. We could call the first or at least one of the very first of God's laws. He did say, be fruitful and multiply. They, pretty much mankind has been able to keep that law, um, although they've messed it up. But one of the very first of God's laws in Genesis chapter 2, the Lord commanded the man saying, you may surely eat of any tree, of every tree of the garden, but of the tree of the knowledge of good and evil you shall not eat. In the day that you eat of it, you will surely die. That law shows us God's justice. In the day that you eat of it, you will surely die. Shows us his faithful, loving kindness. You, you can eat of any, every tree except for that one. And in keeping that law, there is great reward. In keeping that law, mankind would walk humbly with his God. But we all know what happened. And so Micah 6, 8, it must be read and understood in light of the law and the gospel. It's a dangerous thing to pull this out of its theological context, which many do. And we should not, we, in fact, we must not superimpose our own kind of arbitrary definitions of justice and, and kindness and, and humility as an answer to the question of what is good and what does the Lord require of us. If we do that, then, then these things, God's requirements for his people, they will become subjective and, and relative. So the first truth that we, needed, we need to see this morning is that God hates injustice. And he has given his law for justice. And the, and the second truth here is that these things are good requirements. These are good requirements. What is good? What does the Lord require of you? God has given his law to show his love for his people, to establish them and to care for them. Listen to what, listen to what King David sang in Psalm 19. You, you know this, I'm sure. The law of the Lord is perfect, reviving the soul. The testimony of the Lord is sure, making wise the simple. The precepts of the Lord are right, rejoicing the heart. The commandment of the Lord is pure, enlightening the eyes. The fear of the Lord is clean, enduring forever. The rules of the Lord are true and righteous altogether. More to be desired are they than gold, even much fine gold, sweeter also than honey and drippings of the honeycomb. Moreover, by them is your servant warned. In keeping them there is great re reward. God gave his law to give life to our souls, to give our simple minds wisdom, to cause our hearts to rejoice and our eyes to see. In keeping God's law, there is great reward. And so these are good requirements. He has told you, O oh man, what is good and what does the Lord require of you but to do justice, to love kindness and walk humbly with your God. Do justice. Act justly, that means. You know what the word do means, D-O, it means to accomplish or to, to complete something, to perform an activity. In particular, it's, it's used in the law in a sentence like this, and you shall be careful to observe all of these statutes, to do them. And the word justice, to do justice, it's the most common word in the, in the Old Testament for the exercise of government according to God's law. 
the exercise of government according to God's law. And in order to fulfill this requirement, in order to do justice, um, there are four kind of prerequisites. I am indebted to Tom Askell from Founders Ministries for this. Um, He doesn't know me at all, but he was helping me prepare this. Uh, The first prerequisite in order to do justice is that we must treat people lawfully. We must treat people lawfully according to how God would have us. Look even to the Ten Commandments to what this looks like. The second half of the Ten Commandments are all dedicated toward others. Honor your father and mother. You shall not murder. You shall not commit adultery. You shall not steal. You shall not bear false witness against your neighbor. You shall not covet any of you, anything that's your neighbor's. Doing justice means that we keep these commands. And these are just a summary. Those are just summary statements of how we treat people lawfully. The rest of the law goes into great detail. And then Jesus, on the Sermon on the Mount, he actually explains that it pertains not just to our actions, but even to our thought life. Treating people lawfully even gets to our hearts and flows from our hearts. And then secondly, we must also not only treat people lawfully, but but impartially. Remembering that every person is made in the image of God. And so we must show no, no sinful favoritism or prejudice. Moses instructed the people in, in Deuteronomy chapter 1, um, as he's setting up the kind of the division of labor, he says, So I took the heads of your tribes, wise and experienced men, and set them as heads over you, commanders of thousands, commanders of hundreds, commanders of fifties, commanders of tens, and officers throughout your tribes. And I charged your judges at that time, hear the cases between your brothers and judge righteously between a man and his brother or the alien who is with him. You shall not be partial in judgment. You shall hear the small and the great alike. You will not be intimidated by anyone for the judgment is God's. And the case that is too hard for you, bring to me and I will hear it. The law states that they were were not to judge by by gender or skin color or country of origin. Rather, they were to regard every person according to the standard of God's righteous law. James talks about a very similar thing uh, within the church in James chapter 2, verses 1 through 4. You can look that up later. So remember the world's definition of social justice? Essentially, equality. Doing justice according to the Bible doesn't mean, does not mean everybody just gets a trophy or that trophy or all the trophies are taken away from some and given to others. It doesn't mean that everyone should necessarily receive the same outcome in life. Why? Because the third prerequisite for doing justice is that we must treat people proportionally, how they deserve to be treated. So I'll give you kind of a negative example. God established the death penalty back in Genesis chapter 9, verse 6. And it is proportionate justice for the crime committed according to his law. So Genesis 9, 6 says, Whoever sheds the blood of man, by man his shall his blood be shed. For God made man in his own image. God established that murderers should face the death penalty. And this is proportionate justice, and it's important for us to understand this because in order for us to do justice, we must also show restraint. For the wages of sin is death, but the free gift of God is eternal life 
through Jesus Christ our Lord. Hold on to that thought because we're going to come back to it. God shows his love for us in that while we were still sinners, Christ died for us. And then the third, or the fourth rather, prerequisite is that we must treat people fairly. We're to give people what they are due. This is what Jesus will do in, in Matthew 16, verse 27. For the Son of Man is going to come with his angels in the glory of his Father, and he will repay each person according to what he has done. That's where we say, uh-oh. We understand that at the same time that people, um, some people deserve certain treatment simply because of who they are, right? Parents. We, Steve mentioned in Sunday school. Honor your father and mother. They are to receive a certain kind of treatment simply because of who they are. The Bible will tell us similar things about those who govern, honor the emperor, um, church leaders, but also certain people design, uh, deserve certain treatment because of who they are. Think about murderers, and thieves, and liars, adulterers, etc. The Bible calls us to do justice, to act justly toward others. And justice is not demanding gender equality amongst the preaching staff. Justice is working with those who walk into the pregnancy center looking for the type of help that they don't even know that they need. That's what justice is. When he says do justice, that's what he's talking about. The second good requirement of God is that we are to love kindness, is what the ESV says. This word here, um, but to do justice and to love kindness, it's kind of a difficult to translate from Hebrew and capture the full meaning. It's that word has said. We've talked about that before. It means mercy and faithful loving kindness and steadfast love, especially in a, in a covenant relationship between two parties where one person is stronger and, and one person is weaker. This is our relationship with God, or maybe I should say this is God's relationship with us. His has said. Turn to, to Psalm 136. I want you to see this. I'm not going to take the time to read it, but I want you to see the words. Psalm 136. If we had time, I would actually have us read this as a responsive reading. Um, just let your eyes walk down that psalm. Give thanks to the Lord, for he is good, for his steadfast love endures forever. 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 All through the psalm. This is what saved us. That loving kindness of God. His steadfast love. That's the word. That's the same word that is used here. His hesed. His steadfast love that endures forever. For God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten son that whosoever believeth in him should not perish but have everlasting life. His steadfast love. This is why God has mercy on us. Psalm 51, the very first verse. Have mercy on me, O God, according to your steadfast love. According to your abundant mercy, blot out my transgressions. This, this loving kindness and, and mercy and, and faithfulness of our God, it, is, it has come to us through Jesus Christ. As his people... He has shown us kindness 
when it says, He has told you, O man, what is good. And what does the Lord require of you but to do justice, to love kindness? He has shown us kindness through Jesus Christ. We are to do the same in response. 1 John 3.16, By this we know love, that he laid down his life for us, and we ought to lay down our lives for the brothers. If doing justice governs our actions, I think it's interesting that he starts here, that, that Micah starts with our actions. If doing justice governs our actions, then loving kindness governs our attitudes, our, our hearts and our minds. It shows us that, that God has always intended for us to keep his law, not just with outward obedience, but with our thoughts and our hearts as well. Think back to John's gospel in our study. The Pharisees, the scribes of Pharisees, the Jews, the Jewish leadership, they clearly did not love kindness. Do you? Do you love kindness? Kindness is the fruit of the Spirit working in your heart. Do you know the best way to, to love kindness? Not just do kindness or do kind things, but to actually love kindness. The best way to love kindness is to meditate on God's kindness toward you. Ephesians chapter 2, but God, being rich in mercy, because of the great love with which he loved us, even when we were dead in our trespasses, made us alive together with Christ. By grace you have been saved and raised us up with him and seated us with him in the heavenly places in Christ Jesus so that in the coming ages he might show the immeasurable riches of his grace in kindness toward us in Christ Jesus. This meditation should cause our hearts to rejoice as it did Micah's. Flip over to the end of Micah, his very closing words of the book. Chapter 7, verses 18, 19, and 20 says this. Micah says, Who is a God like you, pardoning iniquity, passing over transgression for the remnant of his inheritance? He does not retain his anger forever because he delights in steadfast love, has said. He will again have compassion on us. He will tread our iniquities underfoot. You will cast all our sins into the depths of the sea. You will show faithfulness to Jacob and steadfast love to Abraham as you have sworn to our fathers from the days of old. And then God's third and final good requirement for his people is that we walk humbly with our God. This is repentance. This is repentance. Do you see how Micah has laid this out? Almost in reverse order. He starts with actions, do justice. Then he goes to attitudes, love, kindness. And now he's on our repentance. Walk humbly before God. Isaiah 66, verses 1 and 2. Thus says the Lord, heaven is my throne, the earth is my footstool. What is the house that you could build for me? What is the, the place of my rest? All these things my hand has made, and so all these things came to be, declares the Lord. But this is the one to whom I will look, he who is humble and contrite in spirit and trembles at my word. To walk in humility is to repent of your sins and tremble at his word. It is to understand and acknowledge that you're unable to follow God's law. 
I've said all of that, and now I'm saying you are unable to follow God's law. We need to acknowledge that, that we have broken God's law, even if we've just broken it in our minds and in our hearts. We've broken God's law. But Jesus Christ fully kept the law in perfect obedience. Romans chapter 10, verse 4, For Christ is the end of the law for righteousness to everyone who believes. And then just a few verses later, Paul says, If you confess with your mouth that Jesus is Lord and believe in your heart that God raised him from the dead, you will be saved. For with the heart one believes and is justified. With the mouth one confesses and is saved. For the scripture says everyone who believes in him will not be put to shame. For there is no distinction between Jew and Greek. For the same Lord is Lord of all, bestowing his riches on all who call on him. For everyone who calls on the name of the Lord will be saved. Walking humbly before God begins with repentance and it flows from there throughout the rest of our lives. If the social justice issue of the of the day, the social justice issue du jour, whatever it is. If it's against the Bible's clear teaching, it's not justice. And if doing justice lacks loving kindness, then it's not biblical justice. If doing justice and loving kindness lack walking in humility before God, if they lack repentance and Christ-likeness, then all of our own righteous deeds are as filthy rags. But then listen to the rest of Ephesians chapter 2. For by grace you have been saved through faith. It's not your own doing. It's the gift of God. Not as a result of works so that no one may boast. For we are his workmanship, created in Christ Jesus for good works, which God prepared beforehand that we should walk in them. What is it that the Lord requires of you? He has told you, O oh man, what is good and what does the Lord require of you but to do justice, to love kindness, and to walk humbly with your God. Start with walking humbly before God. Because we have been saved by grace through faith. And as Ephesians says, we are his workmanship, created in Christ Jesus for good works, which God prepared beforehand that we should walk in them. Let's pray. Father, as we look at the world today and we look at many needs out there, um, some are genuine needs, justice, injustices that are being done that we as the church, as Christians, need to, to work to right, to correct. Lord, we pray that we would walk humbly before you. We pray that we would love not just being kind, but that kind of merciful, faithful, uh, loving kindness that only is yours, that we only see modeled in Christ, that we might imitate him in loving kindness. And so if we do justice, if we, if we help others, if we feed, if we give a cup of cold water, if we serve in some way, Lord, that we would do it because of your loving kindness toward us. 
that we would do these things as we walk humbly before our God in repentance. Transform our hearts, Lord. We pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen.